The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, June 15th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So this is one of those times when no one is saying a thing that needs to be said or I'm a horrible monster. What about both, Mike? Or what if the thing that needs to be said is that you're a monster? Okay, here's what needs to be said. Preamble. This is honest. My heart goes out to everyone who was shot and critically injured in that Republican baseball softball practice shooting. It's horrendous. Uh, Steve Scalise, the congressional staffer, the former staffer who's now a lobbyist who pitches batting practice to the Republican baseball team. They are people. They are public servants. It's uh, horrible when anyone has this happen to them. If you live in a democracy and they start gunning down our leaders, that's truly terrible. No one deserves what happened to them. And just seeing representatives in their three-quarter length sleeve baseball uniform doing press availabilities afterwards because, as my Slate colleague Jim Newell said, they seem not to know what else to do. That is very human. That affected me. But when I heard Speaker of the House Paul Ryan say this, We are united. We are united in our shock. We are united in our anguish. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Here's what I thought. So as a human experiencing a dangerous and scary incident, especially one that happened to someone he's so close with, that's that's understandable. But think about an attack on one as an attack on all. He means an attack on one of us, one of us being the members of Congress, is an attack on all the members of Congress. But since he's a member of Congress in a representative democracy, Representative Ryan's words could have meant an attack on one of us, an American citizen, is an attack on all of us. He could have spread the empathy beyond the circle of the Capitol Dome, could have done this in the past. Think about Sandy Hook or the Emanuel African Methodist Church or yesterday, just yesterday, that UPS station in San Francisco where three innocent people died. Just as those communities felt shock and they huddled together and they experienced powerlessness after their trauma. Congress is going through that now. The difference is the word powerlessness. There are 535 people in the United States who actually aren't powerless in the face of these tragedies. And you, Mr. Speaker, are one of them. In fact, you are the chief one of them. This country already has 300 million guns short of a mass buyback, which I can't see happening. We're not going to be able to prevent all mass shootings. And I will state this in specific. In this specific one, I do not know if any reasonable amount of gun control would have prevented it. Maybe it would have. The shooter was arrested in the past for a violent incident. Charges were dropped. Usually get your guns back. Maybe you shouldn't. The point isn't if this one or that one or some other one specific shooting would have been stopped by some legislation. What we do know is that decent legislation would have, could have, has in other countries prevent some of these shootings, taken away some of the pain. I'm not sure if the pain in Charleston or the pain in Sandy Hook could have been taken away, but maybe one of them, maybe both of them, maybe the pain in San Francisco or maybe the pain there in Washington, D.C., So enacting some decent legislation, which you can do, if you expand the definition of one of us in that attack on one of us construction, if you do that, it will prevent some unforeseen future shooting. We won't know that it didn't occur. We won't be able to trace it back 
necessarily directly to actions taken years before because it didn't happen. But that is actually how progress works. Or as we see with these horribly wounded people in Washington, how progress doesn't work. On the show today, a spiel about the terrible, norm-busting, egregious action that the president could take that would be bad for America, but worse for him personally. But first, we can use political words to wound or words to heal. We could use political words to bring together or to polarize. Or my favorite, we could use political words to win arguments. I talked to a professor who has these specific words that work with members of each party and which, if you don't use them right, are destined to fall on deaf ears. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, oh, I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. These days, it seems like we're just talking past each other. In this age of polarized politics and siloed media, there are tribes separated by a common language. On the one hand, you have the globalist urban elites, they get pretty annoying, what with their safe spaces and quinoa. On the other hand, you have the senseless, brain-eating undead who feast on the flesh of the righteous. That ain't my analogy. That's Stanford professor Rob Willer, who, well, I, I, rather than defame him any further, he is a uh, professor of sociology and organizational behavior at Stanford. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm good. It's a pleasure pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. I'm going to have him explain why I was uh, talking about zombies there for a second. When I think about political polarization in this country, I'm, I'm often reaching for some sort of movie analogy, just because I'm sort of obsessed with movies like most Americans. You know, I think about different movies we might think of ourselves being in in this country. Maybe it's a war movie, you know, certainly seems like a war. Maybe it's a disaster movie. Definitely feels like it's a political disaster right now. But the one that I keep coming back to is I, I feel like we're in a zombie apocalypse movie. You know, we're just trying to hold on to what we hold dear, protect ourselves from this army of the undead that's thoughtless and spreading their disease, marching across this country. American liberals definitely think of themselves as the good guys mm -hmm. in the zombie apocalypse movie, uh, like Brad Pitt, just trying to hold on to the country, defend it from this, you know, this zombie horde. But what they don't take into account, I think, is that conservatives have more or less the same narrative in their head. They also think that they're defending themselves from a, a mindless ideological horde that's trying to ruin the country. And that's a, that's a tough place when both sides think they're the good guys in the zombie apocalypse movie. Right. Where Brad Pitt, they're Charlton Heston in The Omega Man. Although I won't give that movie <laughs> away, but um, that's useful. And I think it gets to, it's if a listener were to say, oh, so he's one of these guys who will tell us, why can't we all get along? 
I would say dig a little deeper on that because he's not actually saying, why can't we all get along? He's explaining that even the concept of all getting along is not something that both sides subscribe to equally. Yeah, that's that's well put, I think. I, I think that one of the bigger dilemmas we face with polarization in our country uh, is that our political topography in the country is undergirded by this underlying moral topography. So we have this political divide that we see above the surface, these warring parties and policies and candidates and ideologies, and that's all vivid. You can turn on CNN and you can see that pretty clearly. But what's less clear is that the whole thing under the surface rests on a moral divide. And when something rests on a moral divide like that, that's that's a tough thing to resolve because people's values are their most deeply held opinions and attitudes. By definition, people are willing to fight and die for their values. And so, you know, when we have these political conversations, we're asking people to agree with us on our favorite presidential candidate or our favorite policy, you know, healthcare, same-sex marriage, whatever it is. And we're asking them not just to agree with us on the issue, but also on our, our moral reason for having that position. That's asking a lot. And it's not surprising it usually doesn't work very well. And so you and your co-researcher, uh, Matt Feinberg of the University of Toronto, put your finger on four key values for Democrats and conservatives, Dem- or I should say liberals and conservatives. Liberals believe in equality, fairness, care, and protection from harm. And conservatives tend to endorse loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, and moral purity. And if you know that, you begin to say to yourself, oh, so all these arguments that are really persuasive to me might not be persuasive to thee. Could you talk of a couple concrete examples? Yeah, sure. That's uh, And that's that's exactly right. So, you know, for the last several years, we've been interested in how liberals and conservatives approach political persuasion and how those values that you just enumerated shape the way they make political arguments. And so when we ask liberals to make an argument for, say, same-sex marriage that would be persuasive to conservatives, what they overwhelmingly do is make arguments in terms of their own moral values, you know, equality, fairness, harm, care protection of people from harm. And then conservatives do the same thing when they have to make, when we ask them to make arguments that would be persuasive to liberals, they make arguments in terms of their own values and in terms of, you know, respect for authority and group loyalty, patriotism, and so on. But the problem is those arguments that they're making are exactly the ones that would not be persuasive to the people they're supposedly targeting for persuasion. So when we go to you know, when we approach political persuasion, we tend to talk like we're speaking into a mirror. You know, we don't persuade so much as we recite our own reasons for having the views that we do. We say, right. oh, you know, why should you support same sex? Well, let me tell you about why I support same sex marriage. Yeah. And it's not it's not a failing. I mean, we're saying to ourselves, well, what's the best argument? We define the best argument probably as the one that won us over or the one that hits our buttons. But let's think about the other guy's buttons if you want to ever get anywhere. I remember one time I was talking to Ralph Nader and he was, I don't know, endorsing some policy and said, well, it's about fairness. I'm like, yes, but that's a very liberal value. He said, I think it's an everyone value. I'm like, do you? It doesn't surprise me that Ralph Nader would think it's an everyone value. But actually, conservatives aren't as invested in the concept of fairness as they are in other concepts. Think of a different way to sell this thing to conservatives. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. If you want to sell something to conservatives, you know, that you're thinking about in terms of fairness, often something like patriotism is going to be the more winning uh, basis for the argument. To answer your question about what are some examples of these kinds of arguments that we would suggest people consider if they want to be persuasive with 
their political counterparts. Uh, what we suggest might work better is a class of arguments that we call morally reframed arguments. And when you go to construct an argument like this, what you do is you sort of take the political position you're advocating for and rather than connecting it to your own moral values, try to connect it in some logical way to the values of the person that you're speaking with. So just as an example, we've tested a bunch of these over the last few years. Uh, one example is we constructed an argument for same-sex marriage in terms of patriotism and group loyalty. And this message argued that gay Americans are loyal, proud Americans who contribute to our military and our economy and deserve the same rights as other Americans. And this patriotism-based message turned out to be significantly more effective at convincing conservatives to support same-sex marriage than a more conventional equality-based message. Yeah, and I could think of some that would work the other way. I could think of uh, trying to uh, – conservatives could convince liberals on some things. I was just thinking about the debate, is Snowden a traitor or not? And conservatives usually mm -hmm. hammer on about their principles. He was unpatriotic. He was unloyal. He had no respect for authority. Like th that guy hits all their triggers, whereas a liberal won't be persuaded by that. But if you were to tell the liberal what he did – it was it was not fair to his fellow workers. It was not fair to the people in the field. Uh -huh. It caused them not to have the maximum protection. Maybe that would go further. We also tested it that direction too. And you know, in one of the studies that we did, we we found that liberals would support high levels of military spending, which mm -hmm. is this classically conservative position. Uh, they would support uh, raising those levels more if they were told that, or if they were you know led to think of the military as an engine for promoting social equality and mobility, a domain in society where minorities and the poor can compete on an even playing field, get funding for a college education, and so on. Liberals found that line of argumentation significantly more persuasive than the old patriotism, group loyalty kind of argument. Now, I want to ask you about fairness as a liberal proposition. Uh, Trump does, mm -hmm. you know, screw up a lot of existing definitions, but he's always going on about fairness. And you, maybe he's talking to just his people or whoever want to attend to his message. You've been screwed. I mean, the populist will always talk about fairness and there are liberal and conservative populists, aren't there? So how does fairness work in that Trumpian way that's working for him? Yeah, I do think that it's right that you can make persuasive fairness-based arguments that target either liberals or conservatives. But those persuasive arguments will probably look a little bit different. The, the kind of unfairness that they would be located in society would be different. You know, so liberals, uh, you know, tend to be receptive to bases of unfairness that rest in discrimination against identity groups, disadvantaging the poor. Uh, conservatives in this in the present political moment tend to be receptive to, you know, fairness arguments that argue that cultural and educated and urban elites are, you know, enjoying disproportionate rewards from the status quo. It seems to me that Bill Clinton was great at that. He would always, he would make some or at least extend a branch that could be appealing to a conservative. He would say, you've worked hard. You've played by the rules, right? This is order. This is respect for authority. And then from there, he would talk about, you know, wanting to spend on his generally liberal policy. And it seems to me that Hillary Clinton, even though I thought she was making great arguments, but I'm mostly liberal, didn't do this as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the latent arguments in our research is that first, make a moral argument. 
you know, like you're, you're better off making a moral argument. And then secondarily, you know, be careful to fit that moral argument to the people that you're talking to. Uh, because if you don't, uh, it's not so much that it's likely to backfire. It's more that it'll just, you know, just be inert and, and at least in mm-hmm. our research, just have no persuasive effect. And so I think, you know, first, you know, make a morally based argument. And we didn't always see that in the 2016 presidential campaign. Do you think one of the reasons why Donald Trump and other politicians have uh, demonstrated this phenomenon too seem to have a floor and no matter what evidence is introduced, that floor is not shrinking? Could it be that all of the evidence introduced is just not speaking to the worldview of the people who uh, most rally around, say, Donald Trump? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting analysis. My knee-jerk analysis on the apparent floor to Donald Trump's support is that it reflects the d- deeply partisan moment we find ourselves in, you know, and I, which I think is a, a part of the story of how Trump got elected and yes. part of the story on how his support's not going to fall below 30. You know, if you go back to late spring 2016, you know, all of a sudden it becomes clear that he's probably going to be the winning Republican candidate. And we find, you know, support shoots up for him as everybody kind of, you know, wants to support the winner. And then the question was whether Republicans would fall in line behind this very controversial candidate. And, you know, consistent with our extremely partisan moment, they did, you know, they did. And he he won the election. But by that same reasoning, we should expect, uh, you know, a floor that his approval probably can't fall beneath. And I put it, you know, somewhere around 30 to 35 percent. I I would too. I agree. But if I had 10 minutes with uh, a Democratic senator, I would say, read Rob's research. The Democrats are on your side. Most people who can be persuaded are on your side. He has a very low approval rating. But when you're saying, why doesn't go lower? You need to reframe everything he's doing with this, say, Comey investigation in terms of patriotism. Just hammer this. Just say, I... The reason it offends me is because I'm an American, not a Russian. America, not Mm -hmm. Russian. Say that again and talk about him sullying the election, him dragging the election into the mud, him getting down and dirty with this. And I also think it's a trap that Trump would fall into. He, He sees himself as a street fighter. He'd probably own up to something like that. And I think if your talking points were more about patriotism and just ruining the purity of whatever America is, you might do a little bit better than just on the facts alone. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think that the reason that that floor is where it is does have to do with people's, you know, values-based commitment to their team, to their group. But if they saw Donald Trump as opposed to those principles uh, that their group, you know, is founded on, as opposed to helping them, you know, see those values through in the American political system, that you might find that that support could go significantly lower. Rob Willer is a professor of sociology, psychology, and organizational behavior at Stanford University. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And now the spiel. A couple of days ago, Chris Ruddy, publisher of Newsmax, so he's like a J. Jonah Jameson type, but this guy has a lot of bluster, He said this on PBS about the intention of his good friend, Donald Trump. Well, I think he's considering um, perhaps terminating uh, the special counsel. I think he's he's weighing that option. Maybe he'll fire the special counsel. Hey, that tactic worked well in the past. Let's do it again. Doctor, the time machine has crashed and killed you. I've got to go back. Let's fix the time machine. 
It worked. But doctor, the time machine has crashed and killed you. I've got to go back. Let's fix the time machine. Doctor. I'll stop it here. Now, not going to talk about a time machine aficionado, but a moon colony enthusiast, Newt Gingrich. He chimed in with this tweet. Muller is, and that's one word, no space between Muller and is in his tweet. Muller is. Now, clearly the tip, which is tip with an open bracket, the tip of the deep state spear aimed at destroying or at minimum undermining and crippling the Trump presidency. So there you have it. Newt Gingrich's wise political strategy firing Robert Mueller. Radio host Mark Simone tweeted, obstruction of justice was leaked out by Mueller to make it tougher to fire him. It's a chess move to block Trump. Oh, Queen to Rook 9, the King's Gambit accepted. What will Grandmaster Trump do in return? Rush Limbaugh said, damn the politics, fire Mueller. Yes, yes, I say. Do it. Do. Okay, wait, hold on. I got to put on my responsible fate of the country voice. Mr. President, firing Robert Mueller would violate a norm. No other president would do this. Not Obama, not Jimmy Carter. Those types of presidents, those are presidents. They wouldn't dare to do this. They wouldn't have the guts to do this. Because it would shock a lot of people, people who mostly think they're smarter than you. They'd find it appalling, Mr. President, those kinds of people. Please don't do it. It's violating a norm, like the norm of a, of a real, true, handsome billionaire hosting a celebrity apprentice show, or the norm of you running for president, or the norm of pitting Mike Tyson against Leon Spinks. Those violated norms, so therefore you can't do this one. Rule-breaking bad boys might be appealing to, I don't know, young models, but you're 71 years old. You are clearly cognizant of knowing your place. So please don't touch the orb that is firing Robert Mueller. I mean, firing him would dominate the news cycle. You don't want that. Got to pay attention to other things, things other than you. Okay, enough with what I'm doing here, which is three-dimensional briar patching of our commander-in-chief. That guy's too sharp for this. But you know who was also playing a version of three or four or five-dimensional briar patch? That was James Comey. I think he was, maybe subconsciously. I love doing that, by the way. It's the greatest. If you can't really prove that someone else has a motivation, you know, maybe subconsciously. Anyway, I really do think it might be subconscious. So there was a big criticism of his interaction with the president. Um, a lot of his enemies, and we're going to play a clip with Diane Feinstein, who wasn't being confrontational, but she got at this question. Hey, if you knew the president was doing something wrong, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you say no, then go, then tell? Here's Senator Feinstein. Now, here's the question. You're big, you're strong. I know the Oval Office, and I know uh, what happens to people when they walk in. There is a certain amount of intimidation. But why didn't you stop and say, Mr. President, this is wrong. I cannot discuss this with you. Okay, first of all, on behalf of the big, not call me big, but kind of big, this is a little insensitive. We in the big community call it bigoted. Just because we have size doesn't mean we're tougher or have fortitude or more fiber in other areas like the moral ones. Though Comey did nothing to address this insulting innuendo. It's a great question. Maybe if I were stronger, I would have. I was so stunned by the conversation that I just took it in. Okay, maybe he's yet to personally explode the paradigm of the big being better. He is 6'8". The thoughts take longer to travel to his brain. Here's what Comey did say when asked, why didn't you just say no, then go, then tell? Again, maybe other people would be stronger in that circumstance, but that, that was, uh, that's how I conducted myself. I, I hope I'll never have another opportunity. Maybe if I did it again, I would do it better. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. But maybe this. 
Maybe the reason Jim Comey didn't say, no, Mr. President, don't go any further. I want to save you from saying something that could get you impeached. Maybe the reason is that Comey didn't want to stop the president from asking him to quash the investigation. Quash away, quash away, you oaf, Comey might have been thinking, and maybe not even consciously. He's a lawman. Someone approaches him, offers what could be a conspiracy. You want to let that guy go on? Yes, go on. Ever see those FBI movies where they're working the wiretap? They're listening in, maybe wearing headphones. They're doing the hand motion with the finger in a circle. Stretch it out, stretch it out, right? The guy on the FBI wiretap never jumps in and says, no, no, don't say anything else. Comey didn't want Trump to rein it in. He wanted to give Trump more rope to hang him. I can't say that. Julius Caesar rules. Okay, might lose Delta sponsorship. But there is one more dimension to this idea of letting Trump make terrible decisions that slit his own. Okay, can't Bank of America. I gotcha. Anyway, terrible decisions that make him slit his own policy agenda. It's this. Why is the news being driven by Chris Ruddy and Newt Gingrich still? Still, I looked it up. Chris Ruddy is the editor of Newsmax. That is the 1,332 most visited website. Slate's in the 200s, in case you were wondering. No one has checked Newsmax since their top story was Obama was using Dijon mustard on a hot dog. And now, Newt Gingrich, dear God, doesn't the peaceful transfer of power mean that these people have to go away at some point? Take a tip. Take a clip from me, Newt. The only time you're quoted is when they can't get the top 1,000 lights of the GOP to express a certain opinion. We count on Newt. He'll say anything. I don't know. Maybe it's not 1,000. Maybe it's 1,332. These washed-up political quasi-celebrities, they never go away. Sort of like washed-up actual celebrities. We now have a clause that if you were on TV for five years, you never have to leave TV. But you're on the sixth season of Full House. By law, you're guaranteed a spot as a cast member in a reality show. Do you think this is how negotiations went in the eighth year of Saved by the Bell? Listen, Mark Paul. Listen, Tiff Amb. I know you don't want to keep doing this crap, but please consider your pals Lark and Dustin. After this year, they vest. And that explains how Screech keeps winding up on television until he dies, possibly from the effects of constantly winding up on television. In the entertainment realm, they will always have the celebrity biggest loser in news that titles merely implied. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube produces the gist. He values strength, freedom, true patriot love, truth, and northernness. Mary Wilson also produces the gist. Her core values, stealth, subterfuge, ledger domain, flim flammery. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He holds these values dear. Courtesy, kindness, purpleness, and clairvoyance. The gist, we hold one ideal above all others. It's the funk. You gotta have the funk. Umpuru de Peru, and thanks for listening.